Good morning and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Mark Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome as our very, very, very special guest, one of the owners of WFIL, Susan Love. So, Susan, thank you for joining us today on the program. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure, Arch. It's nice to be here with you. And Susan is helping me out today, so I greatly appreciate that. And before we start, Susan, would you share a little bit of the background history of WFYL and how long you and your husband have owned the station and, and why did you uh, buy the station? Well, my husband had written a Christian newsletter down in Delaware County a number of years ago and tried to get it out to churches and people around the area. And it was a lot of work. And I guess he began to think that there must be an easier way. 30, 40 years ago, he was very concerned about the direction of the country, as was I. So he began to think about a radio station. And I would say, that's nice. What would you like for dinner? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this this station became available in um, 2012. The owner, unfortunately, had become ill and could no longer run it. It was run remotely from Boston. But it had been in the area though for six years so we purchased it in november of 2012 and um, determined that the direction of it would be christian conservative talk working for your liberty became our slogan so that was november 1st of 2012 so that will be eight years this november november 1st and i believe now i have been associated with you both and the station for about four years and it's just you know as time just flies by so quickly so it really does mm -hmm. and as susan i say at my age i don't buy green bananas and i'm grateful to see green grass rather than the roots uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so yes. we want to talk about today and our next program on the influence of philadelphia during the civil war and susan you and i both know that when people think about philadelphia they usually think about the revolution and rarely do they think about the civil war, the influence that Philadelphia had. And is there anything that you can think of off the top of your head about Philadelphia's influence and the civil war? No, as I told you yesterday, I really don't know very much about this. So I'm looking forward to what you have to share because I, I uh, it's, it's a hole in my my historical knowledge. Well, and I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but that was an example of how, you know, again, we pigeonhole areas of the country in certain in geographical locations in a time period. And I'm about ready, I'm gonna make the statement that the influence that Philadelphia had on the Civil War was even greater than Philadelphia's influence on the Revolutionary War. Really? Yes. Um, let me give you some quick examples. Civil War Museum in Philadelphia, Susan was founded in 1888. It's the oldest chartered American Civil War institution. And also the Civil War and Underground Railroad Museum was originally in Philadelphia. And it was started by the military order of the Loyal Legion of the United States. Interesting. On the Benjamin Franklin Parkway, there is a huge memorial to the Civil War soldiers and sailors of the Civil War. And did you know that the largest monument in Philadelphia is to the All Wars Memorial to the Colored Soldiers and Sailors that was erected in 1934 and in 1994 was moved over to Logan Circle? No, I didn't. <laughs> and 
How many generals, Susan, do you think, I'm, again, I'm putting you on the spot, and I know that, you know, most people don't know a lot about this. Civil War generals from Philadelphia. How many do you think that we had from Philadelphia? I truly don't know, Arch. <laughs> I, I apologize. I, I, no, I no, I, I don't I, I don't mean to, you know, because I would, you know, three years ago, Susan, I would say, well, maybe one or two. Thirteen. Really? We had 13 Philadelphians that were generals in the Civil War. One of that 13 was a Confederate general, John Pemberton. And you and I both are very familiar with the name Pemberton in our area. And they're, they're all direct descendants of John Pemberton, who became a Confederate general during the Civil War. Mm. Um, so there are 12 Philadelphians who became generals during the Civil War. And we just want to talk about two of them, this program, and two more, the more famous of the generals. But before I do that, Susan, 54 soldiers and sailors from Philadelphia received the Medal of Honor after the Civil War because of what their influences were and what they did during the Civil War. That's remarkable. So it's just fascinating, you know, what has been done, not only human, but the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a federal government source for medical supplies, money, weapons were made in Philadelphia, medical care with our hospital facilities, and troops that were part of the Union cause. Over 50 infantry and cavalry regiments came from the Philadelphia area that fought in the Union Army during the Civil War. I did not know that. So, you know, many of the uniforms and many of the uh, weapons were made in Philadelphia, and most of the uniforms were made from the garment districts in Philadelphia for the Union soldiers, and which is, to me, Susan, even more incredible because by the end of the Civil War, the Union armies were the largest armies in the world, and they were primarily 95% of their uniforms came from the manufacturing of the city of Philadelphia. So interesting. So probably, let's talk about probably in a lot of people's minds, Susan, the most infamous general, Union general from Philadelphia, uh, George McClellan. Okay. George, George McClellan, ring a bell with anything that you have understood and from the Philadelphia area. Now, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> George McClellan, first of all, he born in Philadelphia. Raised in Philadelphia, his father, Susan, was a surgeon, which we now know, and, he, and his father was one of the founders of the Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. So he comes from very, very good intellectual genes. George McClellan, Susan, attended, went to the University of Pennsylvania at the ripe old age of 13. Oh, my goodness. I was partially repeating seventh grade. When I was 13 years old. Repeating seventh grade. <laughs> well, I loved it so much, I decided to do it in a little more than a year. Um, and so George McClellan, it was a very, very smart young man. And actually, uh, when he decided to have a military career and go to West Point, the problem was that you had to be a certain age to go to West Point. So West Point wanted George McClellan so badly, they lowered the age requirement for a person to become a cadet at West Point. So George went to West Point at age 16. Oh my goodness. And graduated right before his 20th birthday from West Point. 
So he comes from uh, just a very, very smart, smart human being. A lot of people, because he was not very tall, called him the young Napoleon, because oftentimes when you see a picture of George McClellan, he has his hand in his uniform jacket mm -hmm. because he loved Napoleon. So mm -hmm. he liked that characteristic of being a young Napoleon. He was also called Little Mac because he was only about five foot three. <laughs> his men, Susan, his men loved him. He was extremely popular with his men. And George McClellan was an excellent organizer, an excellent administrator for for the army and as a general. And that was probably his uh, strong suit, how great of an of administrator he was in supplying an army, taking care of an army, training an army, organizing the Army of the Potomac, which was anywhere between 115,000 and 150,000 soldiers that McClellan took care of. So. Uh, just a, a wonderful organizer, but he had difficulties out on the battlefield. Did you say 115 to 150,000? Yes. The, uh, the Army of the Potomac, which was the largest Union Army, uh, we have numbers from any, anywhere from 115,000 to 150,000 troops at any one time. Wow. And, and on top of that, you think about the artillery, you think about the uh, horses, that had to draw, uh, uh, you know, drag the artillery around. It's just a phenomenally large army that McClellan was the one who trained, put together, supplied, and then had to move out of Washington when he finally moved out of Washington. Um, at age 20, George McClellan, Susan, graduated second in his class. He must have been point. brilliant. He, he was, he was a brilliant, brilliant man, and he was a wonderful, great, again, administrator. Mm -hmm. And so where we see George McClellan first is out in the western part of Virginia, which is now West Virginia, at a small little place called Philippi, West Virginia, at the beginning of the Civil War, where he defeated a rather small Confederate militia group. And then right after the first Battle of Bull Run, which was July of 1861, when the Union general there, General McDowell was overwhelmingly defeated at Bull Run. President Lincoln decided that he was going to bring McClellan in to be the leading commander of the Army of the Potomac in November of 1861. And so what George McClellan did was that he spent the whole winter and spring building the Army of the Potomac around Washington, D.C. And so, again, the Army becomes so large and it's so well trained and it is so well equipped but George McClellan Susan has a problem. He doesn't want to move his army out of, of Washington, D.C. <laughs> and as much as he trained his, the Army of the Potomac, he really didn't want the Army of the Potomac to fight. And we historians think, Susan, there's one of two reasons. One, he was very proud of the army and he didn't want any of the army to get hurt. And secondly, Susan, if being from Philadelphia, George McClellan was not fully agreeing that we should hold states from the South in the Union if they didn't really want to be part of the Union. So he wasn't really committed to the Union cause? Yeah, we, we don't think that he was fully committed to the Union cause. And in a few minutes, we'll see, you know, what George McClellan does once he resigns and is released from his military responsibilities a couple of years later. So mm -hmm. we're not sure in his heart 
whether he really was committed to helping to preserve the Union by defeating the Confederacy. So, you know, there's there's reasons there. And Susan, on top of that, George McClellan did not like President Lincoln. Actually, I'm going to be even harder than that. George McClellan really hated President Lincoln. When Lincoln went to his house one night, just wanting George McClellan to finally move the Army of the Potomac, which McClellan had in Washington, D.C. for 10 months, President Lincoln went to George McClellan's house and his butler said to the president, well, the general is out to dinner. And the president said, well, I will wait for the general to come back from dinner. So the president was sitting in his parlor for two hours. And George McClellan came back from dinner and his butler said, General, President Lincoln is here to talk to you and he's been waiting for two hours. And McClellan said, and I'm gonna clean it up, Susan. I don't really wanna talk to the president. I don't care to talk to the president. You tell the president I'm going to bed. Oh, my. <laughs> and then later on, Susan, you know, we, we look at today and we say that um, things are nasty and cruel today in our, our politics. George McClellan called the president a baboon, a gorilla, and he was so stupid, he was unworthy to be in the position of the presidency. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, he didn't, he didn't like the president. And the pre President Lincoln said, what George McClellan suffers, he suffers from the slows. Well, so Susan, I, I don't wanna get in the weeds with this individual battles, George McClellan finally moves the Army of the Potomac out of Washington, D.C. in July of 1862. And he immediately announces to the world that he is going to take Richmond, the capital, the capital of the Confederacy in Virginia. So he goes down into the uh, what which we call the Peninsula Campaign. He comes up to Chesapeake. He disembarks at Harrison's Crossing. And he begins his march towards Richmond with an army of, I'm just going to say, 115,000 soldiers. He outnumbers any the Confederate Army, which was then the Army of Northern Virginia, Susan, four to one. Wow. Four to one. He gets within 11 miles of Richmond, Susan, and he stops. He simply stops there. And a battle with, which we call uh, the Seven Days Battle. The Confederate general that was in charge, Joseph Johnston, was wounded at that battle, and he was replaced by Robert E. Lee. So Robert E. Lee was not even a, a combat general at the time. He was an administrative general in Richmond. Lee becomes a commanding officer of the Army of Northern Virginia. George McClellan, Susan, is 11, 12 miles outside of Richmond. He is not being stopped because he has this overwhelming amount of men, four to one. And he simply stops and he begins to retreat back towards Harrison's Landing, uh, which was down in, around Yorktown area. He's highly criticized in the press because of what he did. And Susan, General McClellan goes on record of saying that if he had 10,000 more men, he would have been able to take Richmond. Oh. He has 115,000, Susan. He is outnumbering the Army of Northern Virginia for the one, and he says, he claims he needs 10,000 more men, and the president didn't give him enough men. And then Susan, we find out 
that 60% of McClellan's men were never near the battle. Oh my goodness. So he really was not wanting to fight and he really didn't want to, to use his men there. And he tried to blame President Lincoln for not giving him enough men when 60% of his men never saw any part of the battle to try to take Richmond. <laughs> so Susan, President Lincoln now has a, has a major problem. What are we going to do with George McClellan? Yeah, what did he, he do? He has all these men. He has them well-trained. They're well-supplied, but he doesn't want to fight. So the president, Susan, makes a decision. Well, maybe the army is just simply too big for one commanding officer. So with his military expertise and his military strategist, Susan, they split the army up. And they split the army up to, to smaller armies to command. And part of the army was given to General Hooker. Part of the army was given to General Burnside. Another part of the army was given to General Pope. And then the question is, Susan, well, what are they going to do with General McClellan? Because he's a West Point grad. He's trained this army. He knows a lot about administration. What are we going to do with this man, George McClellan? <laughs> Great question. It's Susan, it reminds me of many times of, you know, and we all have probably some relatives that are a little different. And well, maybe you don't, but I certainly do. Well, when we have our family dinner, Susan, the question always is, well, where do we put this certain relative that's not going to be so strange that they stand out? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what are they what are they going to do with George McClellan? Well, Susan, they decided, well, we're going to put George McClellan up into Maryland in a small place where nobody is. And he's going to be out of the way and he's not going to be able to harm anything or hurt anybody else but he's still part of the army now does that sound fairly safe fairly safe fairly i have safe. a question i have a question excuse me for interrupting but sure, you, said, you said the president was going to divide the army into two in, in the several different um small oh, several. Army. Yes. okay okay so hooker took an army burnside took an army pope took an army okay. and so they also now want, they don't want to dismiss George McClellan. So they gave him a small piece of the army, the army of, of the Potomac, and they had to send him somewhere. Mm -hmm. Well, they send him up to a small town in Maryland, which the president and his advisors thought was out of the way and out of harm's way. And George McClellan would still have responsibility, but he wouldn't have any, he would not cause problems. Well, Susan, that small town is Sharpsburg. Oh which we know as Antietam. My goodness. And after the battle, the second Bull Run, which was a major disaster for the Union armies, they put this army back together and they sent the whole army of the Potomac to George McClellan, Susan, at Antietam. And the Battle of Antietam is the single bloodiest day in American history. It's ironic, isn't it? One soldier, Susan, every six seconds died at Antietam for over eight hours. Oh, my. 23,458 Union and Confederate soldiers were killed at Antietam. And George McClellan is once again the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac at Antietam. And to make it even worse, Susan, he had gotten a copy of General Lee's battle plans for Antietam, and George McClellan knew everything that Robert E. Lee was going to do there. And still, it ended up at best to draw Antietam. Mm. So after the Battle of Antietam, 
Susan, George McClellan is finally relieved of command. And they sent him to a place that a lot of Pennsylvanians to particularly don't have a real high um, liking for, a, a little place called New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> he sent, a new, sent to Trenton, New Jersey. Well, after a period of time, he decides that he is going to resign from the military, which he did. And then, Susan, in October of 1863, George McClellan declares that he's running for the Democratic nomination of the presidency in 1864. He gets the nomination. He runs against President Lincoln in the election of 1864. And Susan, this is where we come back to that he didn't really want to fight and then just let the Confederacy go. Susan, he ran on the platform that if, if he was elected, he would end the war and he would sue for peace with the Confederacy and we would have two different nations. There you go. And Susan, he was going to win the election. By September of 1864, he was well ahead in the polls of Abraham Lincoln. And when General Sherman took Atlanta and Atlanta fell in September of 1864, the polls began to move towards President Lincoln. And Susan, we've all heard the term, you don't change horses in midstream. Yes. President Lincoln popularized that term during this time period, stating you don't change presidents during a time of war. And after September of 1864, with the fall of Atlanta, the election tide moved towards President Lincoln. And fortunately, President Lincoln was overwhelmingly elected in 1864. And thankfully, George McClellan was defeated in 1864 in the election against President Lincoln. That's fascinating. <laughs> so after the war, Susan, George McClellan took his family to Europe, and then he returned home three years after the war. In 1877, he became the Democratic nominee for the governor of New Jersey, which he became the governor of New Jersey. Later on, one of his sons went on to be United States representative for New York and also the mayor of New York. And George McClellan died at the young age of 58, and he is buried in Trenton, Trenton New Jersey. And Susan, military historians rank George McClellan as one of the three worst generals in American history. And unfortunately, that's a trait that you really don't want to your name, but that is George McClellan and everything that he said about the president, what he called the president, his disliking of the president, and then his major disaster on the battlefield really prolonged much of the war. And then his political experience after the war which now we know that, as I said, the military historians say that he is one of the three worst generals in American history. Isn't that sad and interesting and fascinating and horrifying, really? I mean, it's, and, but he was so gifted. And, and was, but, Yes, mm -hmm. so gifted, but he was the wrong person in the wrong job. And mm -hmm. people have said over the years, well, is that really his fault? Well, he didn't have to accept the position twice. And he didn't have to make the comments about the president that he did. And he didn't have to have the attitude that he did. If you're not a combat general, then don't put your men in harm's way because more men are going to be killed and you're going to prolong a situation which would cause more tragedy to go on. So, you know, unfortunately, that is the background of George McClellan. And so with all the generals that we have from Philadelphia, unfortunately, George McClellan is the one that is even more infamous than the Philadelphian who joined the Confederacy and became a, a Confederate general, General John Pemberton. 
That's a fascinating story. Well, in, regard, in regard to the battle at Antietam, I have a question. You said, sure. you said that he knew Lee's battle plans. Yes. He, he had access to those battle plans. So was it intentional? Did he intentionally not use that information? Did he intentionally allow his forces to lose? Well, we don't think it was intentional, Susan. And it was the plans are special orders 191. And Lee wrote the battle plans for Antietam, and he made copies of them and sent them out to his commanding generals. And one of the copies was captured by Union soldiers. They were wrapped up in cigars. <laughs> so we don't believe it was intentional that George McCowan did what he did at Antietam. It, it just shows you his incompetency in be, being able to put battle plans together and allowing his men to fight. Because when the, the Confederate soldiers, again, Susan, they were outnumbered there almost five to one. When General Lee began to retreat away from Sharpsburg, General McClellan would not let his army pursue General Lee's army. And if he had, the war would have been over. So it was more of his incompetency as a combat general mm -hmm. rather than something mm -hmm. that he was purposely trying to do. I see. Interesting. So that is George McClellan. And that is a long, <laughs> a long explanation, which, you know, that was very brief on George McClellan. So I see that our time for this show is over. So Susan, thank you for coming. And we're going to continue with other Philadelphia generals in our next program. So Susan, thank you for coming and sharing with us today and helping me with this program. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Arch. Thank you so much. This is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty.